looks unfamiliar. The show that remembers when Doctor Who magazine relentlessly trailed the first appearance of expanded comic universe characters, the Sleaze Brothers, who made one appearance and then never showed up again. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seems to, is writer Jim Songster. Jim, what are you up to and where can we find it? I wish I could tell you. Um, <laughs> I'm a producer for BBC Online, and I can't really tell you much more than that for security reasons. Honest, security <laughs> reasons. I've written books about TV and film. I've contributed to Doctor Who magazine on and off for about 20 odd years. And in my spare time, I make custom monsters of Doctor Who action figures because I refuse to let my inner seven-year-old grow up. Okay, well, I'm willing to bet that you've never made a custom figure based on your first choice. Now, this theme song is burnt into my head to this day, and I wish it wasn't, so let's just hear it. They've got small bodies and small minds, they're all small, fry and small time. They're the lowest of the lows, they refuse to grow, you know, and they like it down there. Right, well, that was a series that caused BBC Two exactly what the title implied. Jim, tell us about a small problem. Like every other child of the 80s, I was obsessed with the Young Ones, and I would watch anything that starred any member of the Young Ones. So in 1987, a small problem comes along. It stars Christopher Ryan, who I've never seen in anything else except Doctor Who. And it's set in a dystopian present, where all short people are forced to live separately from everyone else in ghettos. So in London, the ghetto is south of the river. And a government switchover from imperial to metric measurements sees diminutive Roy reclassified as a small and moved into a block of flats where Mike, the, the, the cool person from the Young Ones, is running the rebellion. Yeah, I remember. It was in that slot on BBC Two where, you know, it wasn't just the Young Ones. There were a lot of programmes that people got excited about around them. I mean, things like Cool It, Victoria would see on TV. It was that sort of slot... And I think they thought it'd meet that kind of audience, but it seemed to go a bit wider and cause a bit of trouble. Because I remember there were loads of complaints, and I could be wrong about this. I'm fairly sure that I've read something about, I don't think it's quite the legal and royal vault at the BBC, but there are all kinds of paperwork issues in place stopping it being repeated. And I thought I saw it on UK Gold, but apparently I didn't. I'm prepared to believe I'm wrong on that. I've never seen it repeated. I've never seen it available anywhere. It's only because of a previous job where I worked at the BBC Archive where I was able to get access to it. Yeah, it wears its metaphor quite heavily. You know, it's it's all about apartheid, apparently. When all these letters started coming into the Radio Times complaining about the sizes and all of it and how offensive Mm. it was to short people. By attacking short people, obviously they're attacking people in um, the, the apartheid system in South Africa. But it's quite notable that there isn't a single non-white face in the whole thing apart from a Japanese couple. Mm. So there are no Afro-Caribbean people at all because they don't want to do that metaphor. So the cast is pretty much largely white. You've got police brutality. So you've got policemen bursting into their flats and uh, smashing everything up. If you've got a travel permit, they'll tear it up in your face and go, go back to where you come from, south of the river. It is very nasty. Like a lot of satirical comedy... It's, it's particularly brutal and it's very unpleasant. The shame is it's also not very funny. <laughs> so in episode one, you've got Chris Ryan's character, Howard, who is revealed to be a film fan. Now, you might recognise this trope from other shows where they've got an underwritten character and they think, what can we do to make him exciting? I know, let's make him quote Casablanca randomly. But then they forget about that for four episodes and then he might do a couple of other film comments later on. 
Well, the only real thing about him being a film fan is his base for the rebellion is at the back of a cinema. So that's not really that relevant. The funniest character in it is a character called Sid, who's played by Big Mick, who you might remember as the dwarf. Oh, Big Mick? He was in Hale and Pace's The Management, wasn't he? As Barbara Windsor's adopted son. And he was in um, Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. As a dwarf. And he's really funny if you can cope with really offensive, sexist, bawdy laddism. You know, he's mm. a bit of a bore. So he's always gone about want to give it. You want to give it to that blonde up on, on floor forty, whatever. He's really sexist. He hates the feminist character. The feminist character looks like every feminist in every sitcom you've ever imagined. But Sid's big thing is Douglas Bader or Douglas Bader, as he keeps calling him. He goes, why can't I be like Douglas Bader? I mean, would he qualify as a small? You know, if I got tin legs, I, I could be six foot tall. <laughs> He is really funny, but he's also really offensive. It's funny that I've, if this hadn't occurred to me before, but it's more or less contemporaneous to another series that got in a lot of trouble, which, again... Are you going to mention Hardwick House? I am. I was ah! going to say, admittedly, when you watch it now, the humour doesn't quite match up to how I remember it from the time. I mean, the Rick and Aid episode's fantastic, but a lot of it is... What's our pet subject of the week? Is it education funding? Is it against South Africa in one episode? They go in brutally for the kill on those things, but they don't put many jokes in. And at this, I remember being exactly like that. It wasn't sure whether it wanted to be a comedy or a drama, and it sort of ended up being neither. Yeah. I mean, one of the jokes is one of the characters is arrested for having filthy books, Mm. by which they mean Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. (laughs) And the theme tune... Mm. where they sing they're the lowest of the low they refuse to grow you know because they like it down there and it's like the producer asked the composer can you give me something a bit like Randy Newman's Short People but less Uh, funny less biting (laughs) and with a hint of Sammy Davis Jr.'s Candyman and that's kind of what it is (laughs) but that's the kind of level of humour you've got all the way Mm. through it it doesn't really work as a satire it doesn't work as a sitcom Mm. And as a consequence, the edgy humour does come across as really offensive. It's also helpful when you've got the radio. So the radio is like a, a narrator through the whole thing. Mm. So you've got a roundtable discussion where two people are discussing the situation. Or they've got a phone-in where people are saying, oh, I think that they should uh, have all their legs cut off and then they should be shot. And then someone else phones up going, I agree with the previous caller. Or they have, while they're listening to the archers, you might see a tramp who's a short person. And he gets picked up and thrown into the back of a bin wagon. Meanwhile, on the arches, they're complaining about all the townies coming in with their short legs. And mm. maybe they should have a cull. And then the, the arches theme comes in. That's about as funny as it gets. Really. One interesting thing, though, is that it's easy to forget. I mean, you know, ironically for a programme called The Small Problem, how big a thing apartheid was in terms of everywhere you look. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, your Mark Steeles and so on going on about it. There were pop songs in the top ten. Passengers by Elton John. What's the UB40 one? Sing Our Own Song. Labby Sifri. <laughs> every TV programme, every film, including... you see that amazing clip of Timmy Mallet when he goes to South Africa? Where it's absolutely brilliant. And he, like, explains to the kids, you know, saying, you'd have to use that water fountain, they'd have to use that one. He just looks in the camera and goes, it's not right, is it? Oh. And you know, people were fighting it so hard and you forget mentioning Timmy Mallet and before he did Whackaday and all that mm. sort of stuff he was a DJ on Piccadilly Radio yes which I used to listen to because 
like yourself, I used to like listening to things that nobody else liked listening yeah. to. Even if that just meant listening to the same chart music, but from a Manchester radio station rather than the Liverpool one. And he had loads of guests on there. But I, I remember thinking at the time, pop music was really political. You know, every pop song would have a little bit of a message. You look nowadays and it, they say, oh, this song's really political. And you think, mm, political, is that a euphemism for boring? <laughs> it's all in a minor key. Well, I'm wondering if it was on one of those radio stations that you heard your next choice. <laughs> I heard this for the first time today and... Thank you for introducing me to this. I'm going to inflict it on everyone else now. Down amongst the upper crust, Lord Spencer had a thought. I'll marry off me daughter, die, that should abuse the court. So he placed an ad in the Sunday Times and went on the castle gate. It read, come and have tea with Di and me, because it's time she had a mate. That was The Ballad of Lady Die by Ian McRae. I don't care whether I'm saying his name right or not. And the Honourable Nick Jones. Jim, please explain this. I'm not sure I can. (laughs) So I have gone back and and checked out all the things I'm going to talk about today with one exception. And this is it. (laughs) Uh, You do surprise me. So in 1981, you might not remember this, but there was a woman called Diana. And she was quite famous. (laughs) She got famous because she got married to some bloke with big ears. And it just became the cult of Diana Spencer. Mm. Lady Di. And I remember a a holiday, a family holiday. There was was me and a mate and my mum and dad. And we went to Weymouth. And we did a lot of driving to stately homes and to castles and to ruins. (laughs) Because that's the sort of holiday my mum loved. And we'd always have the radio on. And every single time we went out, we'd hear this song. So we started singing it. And so even if it wasn't on the radio, we'd be singing... Lady die, 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 said, stick it in your eye. And it just became... Now I mentioned this to my mum the other day, and she still remembers the same song, and she started singing it as well. So it's clearly now hardwired into Mm. our brains. But I haven't heard it since. Mm. So I'm looking forward to hearing this once it finally gets released. (laughs) Because I think the little sample that you play will be enough. Yes, more than enough. I mean, from what I can see... They appear to be wacky Australian radio DJs, the oh, gentlemen responsible, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> they're really rare, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds to me like somebody had heard Convoy by Laurie Lingo and the Dipsticks. We don't say who that really was now. That somebody had heard that and thought, I should just copy that, but worse. <laughs> and it's billed on Discogs as alternative comedy. Now, I would dispute that. I mean, it might actually prove the old Bernard Manning maxim about these alternative comedians, not alternative to being funny, which I would accept <laughs> in this case. But it's like you say, there were Charles Diana records everywhere. It didn't seem to matter what opinion you had about them. You just no. did the record. I mean, the two that stick in my mind are, I don't know if this actually was a record, but I remember seeing on Granada Reports, a school choir singing a song. The only bit I remember was at the start, they went, There'll be wedding bells ringing, prize singing for Charles and Diana. Oh, no. And imagine doing that, and then years later, people still be bringing out the video, you know, your 18th birthday, and they say, Look, you want to the reports. And the other one was, I thought I'd imagine this. I think they were on the Russell Harty show. There was a troupe of Pearly Kings singing a song <laughs> called Charlie Boy and Lady Die. Oh, and it later turned out when I did my book about BBC records and tapes that that performance was so popular. It came out as a single. No. The memory I have of this song, and as I say, I, I haven't checked it out, 
the memory I have of it is the verses all go through different men who are trying to chatter up. Yes. I'm, I'm guessing maybe they might be like people from different countries. Or yeah. Now, in retrospect... It's like a bad three of a kind sketch. <laughs> in retrospect, suggesting that Princess Diana might be dedicated to Prince Charles so much that she would turn down anybody else from all around the world <laughs> may not be the most accurate prediction that they could ever have made. But obviously, we've got to view this through the prism of, of mm. their death. And I remember the week before she died, obviously mm. the press are, are attacking her, she's a disgrace, and then suddenly, this is, I swear to God, I was out clubbing, mm. and I was living in London at the time, and uh, I was sharing a house with loads of Doctor Who fans, one of whom was Gareth Roberts. We came home from clubbing, and I decided I was going to watch Breaking Glass. <laughs> I thought, I'm still wide awake, I'm going to watch Breaking Glass with Hazel O'Connor. And then I realised I'm far too drunk and too tired, so mm. I turned it off. The next morning I wake up and I'm going to go into the, the front room to watch UK Gold, which should be showing the Armageddon Factor. <laughs> you know that popular Doctor Who story in which a princess is tortured by a shadowy figure? But then it's not on. Instead mm. they're showing Planet the Spiders, in which a beloved woman is nearly killed in a car crash. There's a massive car chase all the way through it, and it turns out that an evil queen's behind the entire plot. So... Then a caption comes up, due to the death of Princess Diana. I'm like, <gasps> what? Run upstairs to Gareth Roberts, banging on his door. The whole house wakes up and then we're all listening to the radio and watching the TV all day. And eventually, once we've come to terms with the death of Princess Diana, I go back to my room and I think, oh, I'll carry on watching Breaking Glass. And I press play. And I swear to God, I didn't know that Dodie Fayed was a film producer. And the first caption that comes up is executive producer... So that was freaky. That's my <laughs> Diana story. Well, I've got two actually. One of which is remarkably similar, which is I didn't realise I found out the news because you know anyone who knows me will know how little tolerance I have for royal news stories, and there've been a lot about them. You know, doing exciting things like going on a boat in the week leading up to it. And I had been out that Saturday night. I had gone back to someone's flat, and while she was in the bathroom. I turned the TV on. There was a news flash about something about Diana and Dodie, and I thought, I've had enough of this. I turned over to the Paramount Comedy when Lancelot Link's Secret Chimp was on. That was my abiding memory. So, what she would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but then it gets even better because, you know, there was hardly anything on TV or radio for days afterwards. And I remember, like, just flicking around the radio dial, seeing if anything was on, because they cancelled things like the Shuttleworths and so on, which is really weird. But I lighted on Radio City, who were obviously, they were playing Imagine and stuff like that. And then the DJ said, and now here's a song that I think reflects how we're all feeling at the moment. R.E.M. with Everybody Hurts. And somehow, you know, it was pre-computerised mm -hmm. play out. Somehow they played Fall On Me, which... <laughs> Which is about big business buying and selling the sky and very up tempo. <laughs> so, again, that's, that's always associated with that for me. Well, she was the princess of our hearts, anyway. <laughs> so, do you remember any other Diana merchandise or records? I do remember getting in trouble for laughing at there was a stall in town selling souvenirs, which were big cardboard <laughs> ears with Charles on one, Diana on the other. I mean, again, what, moving to London and seeing the, all the tourist traps. And every single shop would have a cardboard cut-out mask of Charles and Diana, even way after they'd split up. I should have bought a few of those. I could add them to my Jimmy Savile soap on a road collection. Uh, <laughs> just, I can't even sell on eBay now. And I'm terrified to put them in the bins in case anyone finds them. <laughs> I 
have you seen that you can now get Piers Morgan cardboard masks in party shops? Oh, is that That's for when you want to be ejected. Is that, is that when you want to go to Halloween but frighten everyone to the death? Yeah. Of yourself, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there were some things in the early 80s that just came and went without having much effect at all, no matter how fondly we might remember them. And I think that's very much true of your next choice. What happened if Kirk or Spock got beamed down inside a solid object? I mean, what happened if Kirk got beamed down inside a fridge? College. Or a chemical toilet? College. Or a church tower? College. Or then big lumps College. of... College! You're just jealous. You're jealous of this bloke who's sleeping with Wendy. He's not sleeping with her, Mark. He's not going to have any time for that. There's going to be all these other aliens arriving. He's going to have to book them in somewhere before the weekend. Colin, have you thought of taking a holiday? I thought... Colin, I know this doctor. He's good. He's very good. He's got loads of certificates and big, thick glasses. Martin! They're coming! They're coming! They're coming! I told you, Martin. Did you hear him? He was shouting, they're coming, they're coming. He was probably collecting for something. He wasn't. He was shouting, they're coming, they're coming. Colin, that could mean anything out of context. He was probably an art student. I don't like it, Martin. I just... Martin! The sky! It's turned red! Okay, that was a bit of dialogue from... Well, rather than from, about they, who came from somewhere else. (laughs) Typical early Channel 4 fair, I'm saying. Jim, do you disagree? Like yourself, I watched everything that Channel 4 put out, except for the operas and the ballet. Friday night, I would always be watching the latest comedy show. And this turned up, so it's a Channel 4 comedy and it's on Friday night, and it's about sci-fi. So, of course, I tuned in. I'm not sure if I was the only one watching it by the final episode. There was something about this that I did like, which is that it was chaotic. It was very similar in tone to The Young Ones and the comic strip, in that every character shouted at every other character rather than just having a normal conversation. And it had random elements that would pop up. It had some very dodgy puppets. It had very glorified, ridiculous gore. And I just had very fond memories of it. I think... I'm including this mainly as a warning to the curious. Never go back. Never check. Mm. Because it's never as good as you remember. That's the odd thing about early Channel 4. Is that there was all this stuff that in a way seemed quite weird and alternative. But was doing it in like almost within the traditional sitcom format. I know this wasn't strictly a sitcom. But in a gentleman's sense. It was like a continuing narrative. It was a sitcom in the sense that a lot of comedies at that time stopped having a laughter trap. Yes. And it was made on very low-grade film, and it was made in locations that weren't uh, soundproof for TV. So it had the air of... Remember the very first episodes of Brookside, or the very first yeah. episodes of El Dorado, where people kept complaining about the sound, because it all sounded muffled? It also, looking back, has the air of... You know those fan videos that Doctor Who fans make? Yes. Where they're all shot around the university campus, or around a field, and they all have that kind of echoey quality. So it feels like a student production, which indeed mm. it was, because it came from... A student theatre production. That's right. Cliffhanger was the name of the troupe. Robin Driscoll was in the... Were the others? Tony Haas was definitely one. Rebecca Stevens and Pete McCarthy. Was that it? Pete McCarthy, yeah. yeah. Now, I was a big fan of Pete McCarthy because he kept popping up all over the place. Yeah. And he was that sort of comedian that I've always really liked where they'd look at life from a a, a jaunty angle, not be particularly cruel, but just go, Mm. isn't life weird? And then make a joke about it. And he would pop up all over the place. 
I mean, the entire troupe popped up years later when they did a, a, a sitcom called Morning Sarge. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it ran for, there was a pilot episode and then yeah. one series. There'll be a few people screaming at the mention of that, listening yeah. to this. And funny <laughs> enough, the pilot series that it was in, this was episode five, and episode six was I Love It. And that could almost have been a pick. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone else wants to do that, please do. you remember do. what the other four were? Because I, I do. I don't, because I don't think that they went to series to do. There was KYTD, which oh, did. Really? Tycho Road, which did. The Stone Age, which nobody remembers, which is an Ian Hislop thing with Trevor Eve as a retired 60s rocker. But were they, were they series one? Because there was two series of they, that. These one, were all series one. Really? I okay. remember. And Dowie, which was John Dowie just doing a sort of sketch show where he went to hell, I think. Oh, it's, it's weird with this. I mean, just to go through the plot. So basically, mm. you've got um, Pete McCarthy is this nerdy guy who's got a girlfriend who's a policewoman and he's got a best friend who's a lab assistant. And into all this comes a stranger with an American accent and his car's broken down. And when he's asked what type of car, he says, a red one. <laughs> Which is probably the funniest joke in the whole thing. But there are weird things happening. The local butcher has just exploded. Prawns are patrolling the, the underpass. Mm. And slowly it turns out that this is not really Middleford, a boring town in the middle of nowhere. It is, in fact, a colony on the moon. But it was just the weirdness that yeah, I really yeah. loved. You know? Like I was going to say, you know, you think of it in terms of other early Channel 4 comedy shows, like things like Dream Stuffing and Swark and No Problem, but... They were all quite normal compared to this. Yeah. I mean, like this, I, I've, I've watched Dream Stuffing on YouTube. Mm. So I found five of the six episodes of They Came From Somewhere Else mm. on YouTube. And yeah, Dream Stuffing, I, mm. I loved as well. Channel 4, yeah. sitcom. But that was a lot more traditional. Ray Burdus was one of the cast members. Yes. And it had a theme tune by uh, Kirsty McColl. Kirsty McColl. I think it did, yes. Yeah, because yeah, I always got that confused with the theme from Swark. Where I never found out who actually did that, but I've often described it as a stroppy sub altered images stroke Kirsty McColl theme song I'm not going to sing it but I can hear it in my head right now I can't remember the words I'm trying to think like kind of very altered images the problem is in the head I've now got Ian Jury doing profoundly in love with Pandora so again from around at the same time but the thing that I hark back to with this is that again Pete McCarthy he popped up in loads of shows then became a travel log presenter for Channel 4 came famous for like his books on on Ireland and he had a really nice jovial style and then tragically he died in 2004 and he was one of the first celebrities who died who I thought well he's one of the celebrities I like Yeah. weirdly he lent his name to a bus in Brighton so that thing of right. now in Brighton, if, if you've lived in Brighton and you die and you're quite notable, yeah. then look and see if there's an available bus route to name mm. after you. So he joins the ranks of Doctor Who producer JNT. Yes. And uh, Wendy Richard, uh, Winston Churchill, Virginia Woolf, mm. to which I think, you know, they're in good company with Yeah, them, yeah. You know. Well, I've got some good news about you. Say you found five of the six episodes, but not the sixth. Well, I'm really pleased to report that. I mean, it's been mentioned there a couple of times. People keep choosing programmes made by TVS, because although it was on Channel 4, <laughs> it was made by TVS. Yeah. But I know you're familiar with this. Some listeners might not be. Basically, TVS was an ITV company that got sold off and sold off and sold off. Ended up with Disney, who apparently appear to have employed Mickey and Goofy to file the tapes. <laughs> Loads of things like Cat's Eyes, That's Love, The Boy Who Won the Pools are just missing. Nobody knows where they are. But all of they came from somewhere else is accounted for. Oh. So it could theoretically be released on DVD. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think it's one of those things that's better as a memory than a reality. <laughs> I was sitting watching that again this week via YouTube and just mm. thinking, I, I could be watching porn. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. But 
you know what I found the biggest slog revisiting the most disappointing thing ever? Starfleet. Oh, Which really? is actually behind you at the moment. It's, yeah, it's, but all it's of somewhere it. in there. Yeah, there's a box set. Yeah. Oh my it's right God. behind with Diax on it. But it just went Listeners, on and there on. Listeners, there is. He's, tell, he's telling just, the truth. It went on and on and on. And it was a surprise birthday present for someone. I thought, I've got to keep watching it. But every episode, nothing happens. I just remember and I, I love, still love the visuals. Mm. I still love Diax, the giant red robot. But... 39 episodes of it. And it's weird because you look at it and as a child you think, oh, Mm. it's another Jerry Anderson thing. Yeah. And then you see Jerry Anderson's actual thing and Terror Hawks is a completely different thing. Yeah. But he had nothing to do with Star Trek. No, he's actually on the making of documentary on it talking about how difficult it was to get Terror Hawks commissioned because suddenly ITV were filling half the year with this imported show that was basically what he wanted to do. That's hilarious. (laughs) That's like getting a Coronation Street producer on a Doctor Who DVD to talk about (laughs) how they destroyed it in the 80s. But speaking of shows that, well, they kind of destroyed themselves in the 80s. Moving on to your next choice, which I had almost forgotten about, and I'm not even going to call it theme music, but here's the theme music. I remember I would describe it as being everywhere yet nowhere in the mid to late 80s it was always on and yet it seemed to be never on <laughs> Worlds Beyond Jim put it out of its misery oh yeah I mean it is mainly the theme tune for me mm. uh, I love anthology series I love spooky series and I love that that theme tune is it's a bit like the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who theme in that I love it <laughs> and everyone else just thinks it's a, a horrible bee in a jar type noise yeah and it's a product of when ITV started broadcasting overnight. So they started showing lots of filler. Yeah. And that became a part of my regular viewing when I was watching Prisoner Cell Block H. And I'm just going to say, last year, finally, I completed my Prisoner Cell Block H viewing. I watched all 690 episodes. Really? <laughs> and um, then I got to meet Maggie Kirkpatrick, who was the mm-hmm. original freak, and Pamela Rabe, who's the new freak in Wentworth. And it was a lovely day. I'm just going to mention that as an aside. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is one of those things where I'd, I would just turn on and it would be oh great Worlds Beyond is on and it's a spooky anthology show in mm. the spirit of Hammer House of Horror or an Amicus Portmanteau chapter but with half the budget but with the assistance from the Society of Psychic Research yes which gives it an authenticity that I for one am entirely convinced by <laughs> and it always had in the, ga- the guest cast so it'd have loads of great British theatrical mm. legends in there and it would also have a token American actor so you might have like Louise Fletcher's in the last one, and of course she'd won an Oscar for her performance as the deadpan nurse Ratchet in One Flew of the Cuckoo's oh, Nest. Oh yeah! And then we saw her in Exorcist Two and realised that she was just that wooden, and it wasn't <laughs> actually an acting choice. And you had uh, Darren McGavin from Colchak, yeah, and Karen Black, and also if you imagine every single show where they've got a North American actor in and there's, mm. there's, there's one in particular that you can guarantee is going to be in it so who would that be? Ed Bishop absolutely he's in there as well <laughs> and weirdly in one episode the token American is played by Mary Tan from Doctor Who what? yes that famous Yorkshire Time lady <laughs> it clearly had its ambitions on maybe getting an overseas chance of selling episodes there I don't know whether they ever succeeded but it's unlike a lot of those anthology shows that we love this seems to always have a happy ending 
So they'd build the melodrama and then there'd be the thing where they're about to die and then they'd all walk on a beach and then the theme tune would come in and everything's fine. Mm. So it was, it was quite tame and it's quite predictable. But that theme tune, once heard, you'll be humming it, probably screaming it forevermore. <laughs> There's two main observations I've got about it. One is that it's very odd. It's at the same time as being very definitely from the mid 80s. There's like about 10 years out of date about it. That theme music sounds like something from, I'm not going to say the Stone Tape because that's denigrating the sounds of the Stone Tape, but it's that sort of 70s, like the Magic Fountain or something. We've got a synth and we're going to let you know we've got a synth. And we're going to use that pitch that really feels yeah. like, like an, a, a fingernail in your nose. Yes. Kind of irritating. <laughs> The graphics look like something from that era. Most of the cast, people like Judy Bowker in it, Darren McGavin, as you say, David Warner, Connie Booth, they're all people that you associate with TV in the 70s. Yeah. And it looks like somewhere between early Tales of the Unexpected and the public information film. Yes. Which, again, <laughs> looks very 70s. But, you know, it has got that feel of the 80s. I can't figure it out. The other thing is that, like you say, it was on overnight, but... Like with New Twilight Zone and the Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense that nobody remembers, it just seemed to be it was on when they thought, yeah, it's on. You know, yeah. There was no no time when you could guarantee seeing it. It just, whenever they had the gap to fill, they'd stick that in. And weirdly, there's only about 13 episodes, which mm. may be a, a blessing, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I've got about five episodes mm. I've been able to get from people and a lot of the people who've had recordings of them mm. they were recording something else Yeah, and this was on the end of the tape mm. so a friend realised that because he used to leave his tapes running overnight uh, like I don't think he was recording Prisoner of Self-Cage but he would have been recording mm. something and then on the end of the tape there would be A World's Beyond so I've got about four episodes that way and then there was one episode again on YouTube so it's it's not even been given the, the VHS or the mm. or the DVD revival that so many of the shows have had I mean Monsters was one of those anthology shows yeah. at the time which I got obsessed with because I love Monsters and I love anthology mm. shows and again going back to that it's it's horrifically cheap but it does have lots of monsters in it so it's a winner well I wonder if nobody knows who owns the rights to it because as I recall it didn't it say at the start it just said PKP Presents which yeah. who is PKP do they, do they sell Pipkins yeah, do, <laughs> do they sell nuts but yeah at the time it was really pushed by things like Starburst yeah. because there was so little on in those days that you know if you liked sci-fi that was available to watch Anything it got British, more prominence yeah. that I'm not going to say that it deserved but that you know that it should really have had as an overnight show yeah. with kind of often quite hammy production values. It wasn't the favourite of Paul Mount from Starburst. I'll say that, <laughs> say that much. <laughs> wow, there's a name I've forgotten. <laughs> it's quite odd as well. But I mean, because there is the big thing about hauntology at the moment. You know, these sort of 70s, 80s, spooky, often unintentionally spooky television, yeah. films, music and so on. Worlds Beyond, I would say, is kind of in the... It's in the last vapour trail of that, but in the era of more prominence when people had, as you say, videos and that like, picked up by accident and so on. But it's not being rediscovered, and I kind of think that's a bit unfair because I see people getting really excited about things where I think, that is not actually that good when you watch it. Mm. Or, you know, just making up, like, imaginary programmes and getting excited about that. Worlds Beyond is out there. Why can't you <laughs> dig that up and celebrate it? There's, um, there's one episode which stars Amanda Redman who would later appear in a very peculiar practice. Mm. So weirdly, it starts with her jogging and considering she played yeah. a PE instructor in, in the later oh, series. she did, yeah. So she's jogging on the beach and then she finds, among the wreckage from a ship, mm. she finds an artefact, this really ugly fetish statue, which of course is bewitched and causes her mm. problems. And towards the end of it, there's a sequence where she's paralysed with fear as broken glass is hanging above her and about to fall into her. 
Mm. And you see the glass go into her eye, but then the camera pulls back and the glass mm. has actually gone into a photo of her. And of course she's fine and she's walking down the beach with her boyfriend at the end of it. That really played in primal fears. And mm. so there are some quite clever, horrific moments mm. in it. It's not quite as twee as maybe I'm suggesting, but... Um, well, there's I, a touch of video nasties to it, I think. I mean, even just saying them, mm. and my first thought is, had someone been watching Zombie Flesh Eaters? I, I doubt it. It's nowhere <laughs> near that. But it, 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 it is that kind of exploitation or uh, exploitative. Mm. Yeah. What's the word? Exploitative. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's like an exploitation movie. Yeah. That, you know, it's playing on all your primal fears, but on a very low budget and with the best theme tune ever. <laughs> Okay, well, we're moving on from that fine rendition to an even finer rendition of some splendid mid-90s chart hits. Now, when you hear this stop and start, it's not a fault with the clip. That's all I'll say for now. my good friend time for you to shuffle the grooves okay jim why have you reminded us of this yeah there's going to be a few listeners going have you gone mad you're <laughs> picking the most famous girl band of history <laughs> well i'm not and i'm not picking their incredibly successful second album but this is linked to it and i'm not even picking the movie mm. which was released <laughs> after them i'm picking the video game spice world the video game which was a playstation exclusive released in 1998 now this is a very personal story. So I was working for PlayStation from 1995 until 2002 when I left to join the BBC. And from 1997 to 2000, I was the lead copywriter. So I wrote or oversaw the writing of every first party manual, back of box text, marketing spiel, strap lines. I wrote the in-game text for a couple of games. And I was invited to be part of the development team to come up with a concept for a Spice Girls themed game. Now, this is where it got difficult. Bearing in mind at that point, now we're going to get screamed at by loads of people who are going, women play games too. But demographically at that time, men were absolutely the major part of that demographic. And we were looking at ways to sell games to young girls who don't traditionally play the normal games. So the instruction came, we need to come up with an idea which is not competitive. It's an experience like the Barbie games where you jump on a horse and you just enjoy the horse riding experience. That's where we start struggling because how do you make a game that doesn't have like points or scores or anything at all that could be considered celebratory once you've finished it? And what we came up with was a grid where you bounce an avatar of your favourite Spice Girl and as you bounce from square to square, you remix one of their chosen songs to limited results. And then once you've, you've successfully done it, you then get a video of the real Spice Girls and they're chatting and there's an interview. And it's, yeah, That's a great reward for finishing the game, isn't it? So I'll say this first of all. The album came out around about November 1997 and the movie came out on Boxing Day 1997. Yeah. And I went to see it with a gang of friends ready to bury it and it turned out to be really good. Yes. You yeah. know, it's, it's directed Brilliant. by Bob Spears and yeah. it's, it knows what it is. It's very metatextual, very funny. It knows its audience and... I can't believe it's now viewed as a disaster because I think I would mm. love to actually own a copy of that on Blu-ray. Just saying if anyone's listening. But our game didn't start development until the January. And we just got the game ready. It had been rush-released. It had been developed in-house. 
And then Jerry Halliwell quit the band. <laughs> so on the 31st of May, 1998, Jerry quits. So we hurriedly changed the strap line so that on the 16th of June, 1998, play the Spice Girls all together. It's the only way you can do it. And that was our very desperate attempt to go, mm. please buy this game. <laughs> all the reviews hated it. All the reviews were saying what a pointless, pointless idea it is. Missing the point that it isn't for you guys who like shoot 'em ups and platform games. It's for little girls. Mm. It's sold enough to justify its existence. Well, here's a thing. That was one of the first music genre games that we had. I think we actually mm. went on the back where we'd say genre. I think we invented the genre of music for this. Yeah. Around about the same time, we got sent a game to review. And it involved playing a plectrum that plugs into your PlayStation and you can strum it on your leg or if you've got mm. a, a tennis racket it works really well with that and there are two versions of it one you play the game where you rehearse from your garage from your bedroom into a local club and then eventually you can play on the stage of the Isle of Wight Festival with the Who Okay. and the other version of it was the same sort of pattern but you end up on a stage in the stadium with Aerosmith and we loved this game we mm. were mad for this game but because it had the extra peripheral, we didn't. We, it didn't work with yeah. any of the games, so we couldn't market it. Eventually, we didn't buy the game. It went off to become Guitar Hero, one of the most successful games of all time. And it just shows sometimes you mm. don't have to have the parent company hold you by the hand to to be successful. That became the famous music game on PlayStation mm. and other platforms. But for us, Spice World was the first, mm. and I have to take. Mm part of the blame for all of that <laughs> well there was I mean when you look back at the Spice Girls it's quite impressive how maybe it didn't quite work in this case but they found a way to market them to everyone yeah. and I would ultimately I wouldn't say nobody had a bad word to say about them eventually but only moaning sods who deliberately want to be you know the alternative to everything else because you know they, they start off they're a pop group they're very empowering to young girls People like me who liked, you know, super fairy animals and super grass are being a bit sort of cynical. And then second video, they reenact Frost the Pussycat Kill Kill. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board with yeah. this. And, you know, the, the, the film, the Pepsi tie-in, you know, everything seemed to be saying you're all welcome to this, which is something that even the Beatles didn't really manage. You know, they didn't go out of their way to court, you know, the mad right-wing Americans. In fact, they did the exact opposite. So I was still working in Liverpool when the mm. first album came out, when the first single came mm. out. And I was w working in a room full of people who were obsessed with Oasis. So we were listening to Oasis all the time while we were working. And at that point, we just had Wannabe. Now, the problem, mm. I think, with the Spice Girls and the reason why some people didn't like them is that they were so instantly successful. Yeah that hipsters didn't have chance to say, I liked them before they were cool. They were so meteorically big, but they felt like a one-hit wonder. And mm. then their follow-up single, everyone was going, have you, have you heard? It's like a guilty secret. Yeah. I like their second single. <laughs> and then they release a ballad, and then they release pop songs. And you think, yeah. They really are a great party band. And they're, they're charming, and they're funny, and they've got distinct personalities. And I really couldn't name any of the Saturdays but even my mum knew Scary Spice you yeah. know what my brother said about the wannabe video don't you she right. said they look like a taxi queue <laughs> which again sort of got me thinking oh I quite like these you know I'm quite happy with that <laughs> I've got a photo of myself on the stairs that featured in that video the first wannabe video because it's um, the St Pancras Hotel yes at the back of there so it's one of my proudest photos <laughs> pointing like a Spice Girl 
although I'm on my own, so I look mm. a bit sad. There is the risk, though, of, I mean, because we had on one of Gareth F. Hirons' appearances, he talked about the Frankie Goes to Hollywood game, and it is a risk when you do a computer game based on a band, or even, you know, a, any kind of phenomenon, that by the time it's ready, they've lost the momentum. Or, and, or just one-fifth or of their one band. Leaves, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the lead time for most video games is... is way longer than the lifespan mm. of any normal band. I mean, when you think about the fact that Jerry left in 1998 mm. and they got together in 96, so, yeah. you know, their the first hit was 96, mm. that's a really long time for most pop bands. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I mean, we think about how short we think of, like, the Beatles, and that's yeah. barely 10 years, you know. But most bands have, don't get the success of a second album. Yeah. You know, that yeah. difficult second, second album wasn't a problem for... <laughs> The Spice Girls, but um, a difficult second video game was. <laughs> were there plans for a second one? No. While we were making it, everyone mm. was looking at it and, and thinking, we wish we weren't doing this. When I think back to PlayStation, where I was in a room of six people, one of whom was a woman, when I'd worked in the testing department of PlayStation, 30 people, two of whom were women. You know, I say that we were selling games to men and boys, and that's that's no real lie, because the people who were making the games were men and boys. And... It took a long time before any kind of diversity on a, on a gender basis came into gaming. Even though there were women who were better at doing mm. tech than I ever was. Or, you know, it was a really hard-fought hard battle. But eventually, women started getting treated with respect in the gaming industry. But mm. even now, I mean, with you know, Gamergate and all that, Martin Bielan would have told you all about that, I'm mm. sure. But uh, it was a very hard battle, and it's still been fought. Mm. And I'd like to think that the Spice Girls played their part. <laughs> well, speaking of hard battles, but ultimately utterly trivial and irrelevant ones, but that's the only way I can think of to introduce this. This is a clip from your last choice, which, bizarrely, is something you don't remember. Inside the castle, the Queen was bathing Pongo, her pet dragon, and making little cooing noises. Good boy! Good boy! She sounded rather like a pigeon. Pongo liked being bathed, but hated the cooing noises. So did the king, who came in rather quickly by mistake. Okay, some of you may have spotted already that that was a bit of dialogue from Rubovia. Jim, why did you pick this if you don't remember it? So, here's the confession. Um, firstly, <laughs> me and Tim went to school together, didn't we, Tim? We did indeed, I yeah. was a couple of years above you. And we also went to the same local groups in Liverpool. So there was the Merseyside local group for Doctor Who fans. And there was Legend for fans of other shows. And we were both starting off at the same time, writing for fanzines, mm. learning how to write, learning how to construct an argument, learning how to construct a review, all this sort of stuff. And we were learning at the same time. And... We were discovering all these old TV shows. Now, I think this is possibly one of your first moves into the arcane, really <laughs> obscure area of TV. It's quite a light one in comparison, in to, comparison to some of the stuff yeah. you've, um, you've come up with. So you came to us talking about the Lost Trumpton series, mm. uh, as you described it then. Made by Gordon Murray, and it's in the same universe as Trumpton, Camberwick Green and Chigley. And our response, as enthusiastic fans of all things old and TV, was, Tim, that's bollocks, you're <laughs> making it up. And I think it's a credit to you that rather than going off sulk and going, you're all horrible, horrible as you should have done, because mm. we were being horrible. First of all, you found the jigsaw. Yeah. The tie-in jigsaw for this Forgotten series. <laughs> then you went and spent time in Liverpool Central Library and scanned in all the episode listings that you found mm. in the Radio Times. And then 
confronted us with the evidence, at which point we had to go, oh, crap, it's real. <laughs> now, that then led to you writing possibly the first ever summary mm. of Rubovia for our fanzine. It probably was, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that I wrote the second, because many years <laughs> later, writing a book called TV Heaven, where we were, towards the end, just desperate to fill <laughs> it with any TV crap, mm. because the publishers were being a nightmare. And I decided to slip in a review of Rubovia, which is almost entirely based on your research. But I made amends because when I then got a job working for the BBC Archive, mm. and I suddenly got access to all of this stuff. <laughs> and I spent ages trying to get them to digitise all these old film prints. Yeah. And eventually, they did. So, we've now been able to see yeah. Rubovia. Yeah. And it's nowhere near as good as Trumpton. It's a thing of no, its, its own not. charm. <laughs> and it's not in the same universe, because it's not even in the same time. No, it, yeah. absolutely not. It's, no. uh, as opposed to the sort of vaguely Georgian feel of Trumpton, this is a lot more medieval. Yeah. They've got magic yeah. as a realistic part of it. Um, they've got a dragon. They've got a pet mm. dragon. Sorry, I should have mentioned that first. There's a pet <laughs> dragon. So it's, it's clearly not in the same universe. And although it has music by Freddie Phillips, it mm. doesn't have Brian Kant. What no. it does have is Roy Skelton, Roy Skelton yeah. and Gordon Murray himself. Yes, narrating. Narrating. Yeah. So I was very happy when, after years and years of, I won't <laughs> say how many, because that will age us, <laughs> having been such a horrific, I'll, I'll, I'll say bully, having been a horrific <laughs> bully to you, it was a pleasure to be able to send you four of the six episodes and go, mm. there you go, I believe it exists. <laughs> <laughs> I believe. So thank you for that, Tim. Well, just before I say any more about it, I should just present more evidence to you. There's <gasps> Rubovia Time for Bed Storybook, which was a 30th birthday present from someone. And the Rubovia album on BBC Records and Tapes, which our old friend Stephen O'Brien found in a wow. charity shop. And yeah, they're absolutely real. It isn't like I've kind of done psyops on you and made you retrospectively think that it existed. Well, this, <laughs> this has happened a lot. You know, I mean, I've, I've had experience with time being changed around me. I was going to say famously, but that's a bit self-aggrandising. <laughs> I did a bit of a talking head for a Doctor Who DVD once where mm. I talked very confidently about having looked up the word Valyard in a dictionary and mm. um, it meant old doctor of law. And then someone on a forum called me a liar and I went back to the family Charming. dictionary, which we still have, <laughs> still have the old family dictionary, yeah. looked up the word and there it was, gone. <laughs> it hadn't existed. Did the Valyard remove it? The Valyard had gone back in time and removed himself. <laughs> So I don't know where I got that mm. lie from, but mm. I, it was it was true in my head when I said it. So it's lovely to see something that actually mm. exists that I would dismissed as a lie, and the illustrations are lovely. I love that, yeah, as you say, you've got the second hand, so the, the former owner, mm. uh, Michelle, bought it for Alice. So, um, I have no idea who either of them are. <laughs> I'm sure there's a song we could sing there about <laughs> Alice, but we're not going to here. And you've got a record as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm terrified of vinyl to this day because <laughs> it's so fragile. And this was published in 1977. Yeah. So, as with the video game we were talking about before, long after it had had its, its TV airing. Yeah. But, uh, wow, there is an awful lot of crap around, isn't there? There, there is. <laughs> but that, that's the thing, though. I mean, this does point towards the fact that it's kind of a lost thing in itself. That in those days, you could remember something and be almost the only person that did. Mm. And now, you know, it takes, what, 10 seconds to prove I mean I don't think there's anything that anyone's chosen on this where I've not been able to find any evidence of it I mean there have been things that like when Jack Rayner was on that programme that she can't remember the name of yeah. that's a bit different but you know when somebody says there was a film called X and Y and you can find it you can find it now, one of the sad things about this is so we, we've now had the joy of this exists mm. it's true it's real and we've seen some episodes but it's very unlikely they're going to be released complete aren't yeah. they because there's one episode 
were and it's, it's as I describe this, every single part of it is terrible. Mm. So there's a man who's doing a bit of a grift on the king because mm. it's all set in a castle where there's a, a king and there's a a man who does odd jobs and every episode he gets a different job yeah. as as anointed by the the queen. And in this episode, a visiting magician who's dressed as a Native American or as we would yeah. say in the seventies, a Red Indian turns up and he is going to solve a problem involving the dragon who's been very very ill. Mm. And he says that he can turn cabbages into turnips, or the other way, turnips into mm. cabbages, and the other way around. And the whole performance is done as a stereotypical Chinaman. Yes, yeah. And you know, me very solly kind of thing. Mm. And as I was watching this and thinking, oh, it should have stayed buried. <laughs> so, so many of my memories should really, you know, don't go back. It's like a sort of pet mm. cemetery for archive TV. <laughs> There is always that risk of an unfortunate element surfacing in something when you revisit it. But uh, it, it was still a joy to see more Gordon Murray puppets. Those ping pong ball heads. Yeah. Those mouthless, uh, blank eyed faces and the little stilted movements. It was just lovely mm. to see more of that. And one day an episode of Skip and Fuffy will turn up online. See, I started another <laughs> one now. <laughs> And uh, and one day, hopefully, I'll be another. Uh, I'll have another job in archives. We'll be able to wipe everything about Skeeboy that has ever existed, <laughs> just so that you can enjoy it all. <laughs> Jim, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Very well. This is normally the bit where I try and persuade you all to buy one of my books, but this time it's slightly different. Some of you will be aware that recently Jim and myself lost an old friend of ours, Paul Condon. Now, some of you might know him as a Doctor Who fan, some of you might have known him as a nightclub DJ, some of you might have read one of the books that he wrote about films and TV, some of you won't have any idea who he was, but given the extensive work he did on BBC Online content, he was probably in some way responsible for something that you watched every week being there in the first place. But most importantly, he was my friend, and me and Paul had actually talked about him coming on Looks Familiar, and he had drawn up a list of choices. You can hear one of them in the background now. It's Fooled by a Smile by Swing Out Sister. But unfortunately, we never got round to it because he was very tied up with having to look after his father in what little spare time he actually had. And that's why I'm asking all of you today, instead of buying one of my books, if you were going to buy one, even if you just enjoy Looks Unfamiliar at all, please, 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 just give a couple of pounds one time as UK. It would mean a lot to me, it would mean a lot to Jim, and more importantly, it might make a difference to somebody like Paul. So thank you for listening.